Hello, my dears. Welcome back to Love, Sex and Magic for a very special episode with some of our most magical best bits. This is part three of our Love, Sex and Magic three-part series on all of the best parts of Love, Sex and Magic so far. So in this magical episode, we have Hella Weston, Lucas Mack, Jamie Sekou, and Gabby Bernstein all on magic and spirituality. We are talking about taking action on your dreams, alchemizing the call of your intuition, honoring the indigenous roots of medicine, dispelling perfectionism through your craft so you can channel source as you create, and how to celebrate and integrate your multi-passionate self in your career let's get into the episode you don't need to be fully healed in order to be a healer Mm -hmm. and in order to start helping others you know i really i really relate to that and i've just been continuously growing and healing at the same time as serving my medicine to Mm. the world it's just been like of course we do this and of course Mm. we're healing at the same time and the deeper that we heal the bigger we can grow and the more we can manifest yeah but um what you were saying about like this addiction of like am i fixed yet Mm. there's so much to heal Mm. it's almost like we we need to stop just constantly looking for things to heal but also you know there's like that that meme it makes me laugh so much but it's like when you realize when you when you realize that your entire personality is a trauma response Mm. right Mm. so funny Mm. but there are things that i look back at my childhood and i'm like if i like once i've healed if i've healed that and i've found resolution around it then i like oh who am i then Mm -hmm. like what does this mean about me Mm. if i'm not who all these things that i thought i was who am I? Like, who is that new identity? And that's why there's just so much death and rebirth mm-hmm. that happens along this path that we can't get too attached to one version of ourselves or yeah. one identity. Exactly. Mm. Like, who do I want to be? Mm. Yeah. How do I want to create yeah. my life next? Mm. We, I feel like we really find a lot of joy in that being creative and Mm. being like okay well who's the character that i want to be in this lifetime and mm. how do i want to dress mm. and yes. where do i want to be and who do i want to hang with mm. and making life like art yes yeah, yeah most that. definitely yeah one of my favorite things to do is to help people expand into their creativity or what, of what's possible for them because i feel like a lot of people have these dreams or desires or vision for their life but for whatever reason they're not giving themselves permission to go after it mm-hmm. and a lot of that is you know the trauma response or not feeling good enough or not feeling worthy of creating your dreams into reality so mm-hmm. that's another really powerful component of breathwork is manifestation and calling things in and seeing it as already done and experiencing that through visions and feeling in these breathwork sessions mm-hmm. and then going out there and taking action and making it real and that's something that you do so well is yeah. you just are a straight Stop. boss <laughs> and you're just constantly taking action and making things real which is something oh. I really respect and admire about you thank yeah. you I really appreciate that mm. I love you guys we love you mm. <laughs> it's inspiring to witness thank mm. you and same for you like I love seeing you guys traveling all over the world working with the most dope ass people like it makes me so happy I'm like go on go mm. on like yeah. mm. I love cheerleading for you guys it's the it's the greatest pleasure it is fun yeah. and mm. then you're really living the game of life right mm. yeah. being mind blown by your own creations and oh yeah what your intuition can bring through for you yeah and it's 
it's something that we see in you and as we've just touched on admire so much is that when you receive the guidance you act upon it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I feel like that is that missing piece that a lot of people just keep swirling and stirring Mm. in the addiction to I I need more I need more I need like more clarity more answers more Mm -hmm. healing well what if you just started acting on what was here for you right now how might that support the shift Mm. it's about self-trust I think isn't it you know trusting yourself and having the confident in your confidence in yourself to actualize these visions that come through Mm -hmm. yeah and instead of going like who am I to do this I can't do that you go well who else would do it? Of course, it's me. You know, yeah. like you yeah. are the chosen one. I am the chosen yeah. one, exactly. And something that you said to me in the in the living room earlier before we started recording was, um, "Of course, it would be you. There's no one else that could do this except you." And mm. I, I try to always think like that when I have a vision come through. Is like, well, it came to me for a reason. Yeah. So who else is going to do it? Yeah. It's got to be me. Yeah, that's right? so important. Oh, and, and also yeah. remember that not everyone's going to understand your vision because it's your vision. So you're the one that has to take action on it. And mm. maybe talking about it to friends or family that aren't open to hearing or receiving your vision is not the best use of your time when you could just be taking action because there's so many people that are looping in the same old behaviors and really not challenging themselves to step out of the comfort zone through fear of judgment, through mm-hmm. fear of failing. And sometimes it's our family members that, you know, put their own projections onto our vision. And I've seen that time and time again in our own lives and then all our clients' lives too, where you have to have that confidence and that fierce, courageous, you know, passion to really, you know, boss up and go after what you want despite what other people might think or what other people might say, because there's always going to be people out there that are going to judge you. It's just a part of, you know, the human condition and the human experience. So you have to bypass all of that. And like you said, use those positive affirmations, those I am statements, and then really go after it. Mm. Yeah. So I want to hear like, how did the world of plant medicine and psychedelics first appear on your path? Mm -hmm. What is your personal journey with it before you realized, oh, holy shit, this is my purpose? Yeah. (sighs) To put it really bluntly, um, ayahuasca saved my life. Um, I was raised by a father who was incredibly abusive and alcoholic. Uh, That set me on a path of dealing with depression as a lifelong issue. Um, I was put on various forms of SSRIs, and it just made things worse for me. Mm -hmm. Um. When I was nine years old, my, da- my dad got taken away by the police wow. uh, because I disobeyed him for going to church. Wow. And he kicked me out of the house and the police found me. And um, that left me as the eldest to step in to raise my two younger brothers while my mother was working four to five jobs just to make ends meet. Hmm. So I didn't really have a childhood growing up. Um, but what it did for me was not only develop a lot of character, resilience, and integrity, it propelled me into adulthood with a lot of overachiever type A tendencies. Mm-hmm. Always, I know that one. <laughs> mm-hmm, always wanting to be the best that I could be mm-hmm. and do a lot of doing. Yeah. And you say you were the oldest sibling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's like a pattern for like the oldest sibling, yeah. you know? <laughs> a lot of responsibility. We carry a lot yeah. of responsibility. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in, in that doing, 
I found myself oftentimes as the only woman, youngest executive in very male-dominated industries. Mm -hmm. And so fast forward to around five years ago, um, I was an executive at a management consulting firm where I was the only woman, the youngest, the only minority on the executive team. Mm -hmm. And after two years of working there, I ended up getting really, really sick. I had globs of my hair fall out. I was waking up in middle night puddles of sweat. Um, I had developed brain fog where I couldn't even remember the next word I was going to say. And um, when these symptoms arose, I ended up plummeting into the depths of depression. Hmm. Um, and, you know, for me, I've always been sort of the high-functioning depressive person. I could put on the mask and the smiley face and mm-hmm. pretend to the world that everything was perfect and fine. Mm-hmm. But this time I couldn't shake it. It brought me to my knees. And, um, this is also at a point where I spent tens of thousands of dollars seeing Western medical doctors that ran all these blood tests and said that I checked out normal. And Mm -hmm. I was like, this isn't normal. Something's seriously wrong, but nobody could help me. And I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed. My mother didn't even know how depressed I was. Nobody knew. I was so ashamed. Um, and so I was suffering alone in silence and, um, and then in a span of one week, I had two people in different parts of my life. My younger brother, who is a former tech founder, sold his company at 26 years old, um, found his way to the plant medicine. He just happened to be doing it. And then he called me literally the next day, sharing with me how the ayahuasca experience transformed him. And then in the same week, I had a girlfriend of mine who didn't know my brother also share with me how ayahuasca transformed her life. And for her, she went to this like five-star resort in Costa Rica with doctors and nurses 24-7 on the side. And, you know, that piqued my interest Mm -hmm. because up until that point, I never did drugs. I didn't even know what drugs look like. I've actually never even been drunk in my life because of what I witnessed with my father. Of course. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, I always consider myself a spiritual person mm. and I pay attention to signs. And I had a curiosity bubble up within me of like, what is this thing coming to my field twice in a week? Mm. And it was that curiosity that led me to jumping down the rabbit hole of researching everything I could about ayahuasca and, and psychedelics. And um, in that research, I just came to an epiphany. I was like, what is there for me to lose at this point? I'm at the end of my rope. Wow. And um, and so two days, or without telling anyone, two days later, I jumped on a flight to Costa Rica and I sat with ayahuasca for four nights and it saved my life. Wow. And not only did it save my life, it gave me a renewed sense of purpose and in everything that I do is to be in service. Mm. This is the reason I'm still here and this mm. is the reason I'm still alive. Mm. And so this has brought me on the path of devotion. Yeah. I have devoted my life to this work mm. to spread my story and the experience that I had and my truth so that it can help just even one person out there who's struggling. Mm. Um, and so since doing ayahuasca for the first time five years ago, I haven't been depressed since. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I and, can, and I can totally believe that yeah, yeah. because I really feel that like depression is a symptom of being on the wrong path, off your path, out Bingo. of alignment, you know? Bingo. 
my definition of depression is a misalignment with one's soul. That's exactly it. I was so off track. Yeah. I was so bought in into the rat race and like never wanting to be poor ever again Mm -hmm. and just wanting to make that money and to like buy into that whole hustle mentality, just constant hustle, do, 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 was very much in the masculine, right? Mm -hmm. Like I surrounded myself with all men. Men, right. And wounded men. You were living in a man's world. Yeah. Yeah. And then also being harmed. Some Mm -hmm. of the biggest harm has come from working with men and white men and white women mm-hmm. because for me and my 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 belief is that we still live in a very patriarchic world built around white supremacy mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of systems in place and those all need to be dismantled mm-hmm. and we all need to be learning how to collaborate with one another to work mm. with each other to come from a heart center place yes our humanity depends on it yes no more fighting. It is time. This is, this is a call for a new shift, a new way of being. And it's time, right? And while I say that I can, I can't also bypass the harm that has been done. Mm. So we need to, we need to all learn how to heal ourselves and what that healing looks like for ourselves Mm. so that we can continue to be in collaboration with one another. Mm. That's been my work too. Yeah. You know, I'm still working through that. Yeah, I'm so happy that you touched on that. I'm so happy that you went there and spoke about that because what comes up for me when you share that is the psychedelic movement, the renaissance that we are in, this era of plant medicine coming to the forefront and the concern that the roots of the indigenous cultures are not being brought along with it. Yeah. And that is so important. Yeah. And I know how deeply you care about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just before we had this interview, you were sharing that you, you, the, a lot of these spaces are not diverse enough Correct. still, Correct. Yeah. despite like the roots of where this medicine comes from and like the true heart of this medicine being in the indigenous. Yeah. These medicines have been around for thousands and thousands of years. And these are rooted in indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we as a Western society, we're still a young country. So young. We're so young and there's so much to learn. And we're so arrogant to think that we know so much more. It's the ego. It's the ego. That's why it's so important to humble ourselves and come with humility. The thing that I practice and try to embody on a day-to-day basis, on a moment-to-moment basis, is the second I think I know something is the second I know nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so how do I hold that space for all of that to enter and to also honor the past and our ancestors and these indigenous communities, which these plant medicines come from, Mm. right? The answers are already there. The answers are there already. We just have to slow down, look back and ask the right questions, Mm. ask the right questions and be in communion with these indigenous leaders and elders and community, right? You know, the biggest thing around psychedelics and plant medicine work is integration, integration and therapy. That's a foreign concept in these indigenous communities. Why? Because they are already in community. Mm. 
They're yeah. already in community. And here we are as a Western society, so disconnected yeah. with one another, so immersed in our devices and social media. We're so mm-hmm. disconnected with each other. We're so lonely, right? And so we, we really need to look at what's happening and what has happened in these indigenous communities and learn from them. Mm-hmm. I just came out of two of the largest psychedelic conferences in which I spoke on stage. And it made me so sad because I, while I look at out in the audience and I love that, you know, yes, we're early in the Western society to catch up to plant medicine and, and we're convening. I see a monoculture out in the audience and I look on stage and I see the same thing. And I'm mm-hmm. like, where are all the indigenous elders here with us? Why are they on stage with us? Yeah. Why aren't we in communication with one another? Mm. And so the future that I see is one that is immersed and integrated with ancient wisdom and modern science. We need that. We yes. really need that. I really feel that. Yes. I really deeply feel that. Hey guys, just want to take a quick break from this episode to tell you about my favorite product that I'm using right now, and that is Pitsy Natural Deodorant. I've tried every single natural deodorant that's out there. This is the only one that actually works and lasts and stops me from smelling. But not only does it stop me from smelling, it actually smells freaking amazing. And there are six different scents. So what I love about Pitsy is I can basically choose the scent that I want that morning, depending on the kind of mood I'm in, depending on my outfit, the vibe that I'm in. So I might go for like rose, which I love the rose one. But then this morning I was feeling more in like a lavender clove bird kind of mood. I might feel in like a dark sea kind of mood. Like I'm so multidimensional that I like to choose a different scent every day, (laughs) right? So I love this product so much. It's also biodegradable, compostable. You can literally um, put this into the soil when you're done with it and it will completely disintegrate into nothing. So super good for the planet, which we absolutely love. But yeah, most of all, just love that it actually works, you know, as a natural product. So everyone get your hands on some Pitsy. You can use the code MELWELLS10 to get 10% off your order. So go to meetpitsy.com or Instagram slash meetpitsy. All right, back to the episode. So you mentioned earlier, Gabby, about how, um, you know, you not being a perfectionist has really helped you in this writing process. So I'm curious to, to hear when you're writing that first draft, are you just not editing as you go? Are you just like literally just like writing, just writing and writing and writing and not going back to edit and just coming back to it yeah. much, much later? Yeah. Well, first things first, I have a core message and I have a really clear outline and I actually share some of my methods for getting your core message and your outline together. And uh, we'll, we'll give your, your audience a link for this, but I'm doing this free training on how to turn your book into a bestseller. And I give my, my main methods for core message and outline. So we can, we can go over that in that link that you'll give them. Mm-hmm. But when I create that killer outline, I can then be untethered. And so I know where I'm going. I know what the intention is. I have a clear outline and a journey that I'm taking the reader on. And then I just riff between the outline. I get it all out. I'll then reread it, lightly, loosely edit it, 
move things around a little bit. And then I sent it to my editor and I hire an editor to clean up my manuscript as I go, because it just feels like the best way for me to stay untethered. And so she'll, she'll do an edit and then I'll move on to the next chapter. And then, you know, we keep that going. Um, my editor, Andrea is just amazing. She will just, just clean it up. She'll stick to my words. I write every single word of my books, every single word of nine books, not a single word is ghosted. Uh, maybe an editor has like changed a sentence once or twice, but these are my words, my books. And it is all about being untethered. It is about being free. And so that imperfection comes in handy. I love that. And I think you're, you're so right about having the outline like that creates, like having that structure creates the freedom for you to be able to riff and, and not completely lose yourself. Cause I, I can't imagine trying to write a book without having an outline to follow you know, it would be like coloring in without having the outline of the, of whatever you're coloring. Correct. Exactly. Good metaphor. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. So I think a lot of people have this dream to write a book, um, you know, have so much wisdom and so many incredible life stories to share that really want to help others, but they have this story of, I'm not a writer or other people have already written about this. There's already so many books about this. Like what about my story is going to be different. There's no room for me. What kind of advice would you give for these people who are kind of holding themselves back because of their own belief in their own work? Yeah. I think that we, when we're in that fear-based belief system of who am I to do this, we're in, we're stuck in our ego. We're stuck in the parts of ourselves that, that feel we're inadequate or unlovable and, when we get out of our own way and make it make the book writing process not about ourselves but about the reader that's when we can clear those belief systems when we remember that a reader even if we touch one soul through the book that, that we've done our job then that's enough and so if you make the intention to serve one soul then how can you fail and in the true expression of your experience you are serving your reader greatly and so I always say that it's your responsibility to share your work with the world. And I think when we start to focus on how can I serve my reader rather than I'm not good enough, then everything begins to change. Mm, I love that. You know, I, I've realized one big part of the book publishing process for me is like this, once I've handed it in, this sudden fear of like, oh my God, what if it's not good enough? What if it's too vulnerable? What if I've shared too much? What if people aren't going to like it? I'm curious to hear if you still have this, like nine books later, do you still have that fear of like, how are people going to receive this or not? No, I don't. But I am with this new book I'm writing, very mindful of writing disclaimers for the reader saying, hey, I talk about sexual abuse here. I want to give you a heads up so that you don't get triggered. And I think that a lot of books, you don't necessarily have to do that or have the responsibility of doing that, but I don't want to activate people through the writing. So it's not about what they think of it. It's about caring for their experience. So in this new book that I'm writing, I want to be very cautious. Mm, yeah, that's, that's a really important point. Beautiful. So you mentioned earlier about like, you're really channeling these books, you know, and I think that is Writing for me is such a spiritual practice and I feel like we are channeling books where we're not writing them, we're, we're literally channeling through, through us. So what kind of practices do you use to help 
keep that channel of yours clear so that you can receive this divine wisdom and guidance that goes into your books? I make sure I'm uninterruptible, number one. I think I also shared that I choose my magic hour. I say a prayer before I write. I just Mm -hmm. say, thank you, Spirit, for writing through me. And this, I do this thing that's hard to describe, but I switch to a, it's almost like I'm switching to a different part of my brain. Mm-hmm. Like I go, it's hard to describe because it's just sort of unconsciously happening, but I turn to the more creative space. So it's mm-hmm. like the right brain's creative capacity. I get out of logic and reason and I just allow myself to to turn a switch almost, it's very strange. It just happens. And it, it's, I don't really know that I can describe it, Mel, but it's so cool that I just lean into this other part of the brain where I just like kind of open up my, my ability to just allow. And also, cause I, I am, I am, we all are mediums, but I have, I do hear spirit. So I can say, Hey, come on in, let's go. Love that. Really like tapping into flow state. And I imagine the more you do it, the easier it becomes to just switch that on. Yes, that is actually very true. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So Marie, you coined the term multi-passionate, which I just love and I relate to so much. I really resonate with that um, as a multi-passionate person, just like yourself. But you've also really been so good at nailing down on one main thing in your business, your epic program, B-School. So how has someone as multi-passionate as you are been able to focus so much year after year after year on this one thing? And do you have any advice for other multi-passionate entrepreneurs or budding entrepreneurs out there who want to just do it all? Yes. Well, first of all, I think that as a multi-passionate entrepreneur, there's always going to be a lot of things that you're very interested in. There's probably a lot of things that you're gifted at. There's a lot of things that you have to offer to this world in terms of making a difference. And, you know, in the earlier part of my journey, after I discovered coaching and after I started my training, uh, I started my business, one of the big realizations was that I actually never felt comfortable just calling myself a coach. It felt too narrow and too limiting. I was extremely passionate about dance and fitness, specifically hip hop. I was also really passionate about spirituality and writing and what was then a very nascent world of digital marketing. You know, I, I was advertising. I was writing an email newsletter before those things were even popular, all of these different things. And so one of the things that I recognized within myself that trying to artificially narrow my scope, especially in the beginning, was going to be a recipe for disaster. I had read every success book out there. I had read all of the different career books, like What Color Is Your Parachute? And so many different books and wise people would say, okay, you've got to pick one thing. You've got to narrow in. Even my coach training, which was fantastic, was like, okay, are you a productivity coach? Are you a relationship coach? Are you a career coach? And I just remember feeling like anytime I would try and adhere to that advice, it was like I was cutting off a limb. 
And it wasn't until that phrase came to me, multi-passionate entrepreneur, that I felt myself expand. And then I felt myself finally giving me a new context to be the biggest, fullest, most multifaceted version of me that I actually was. And it was like, I am too big for these conventional definitions. I do not fit into these boxes that everyone wants to put me in. So for the next few years of my career, especially when I was starting out, I said, you know what? I'm not calling myself a life coach and I'm not only going to focus on that. I simultaneously developed an amazing career in dance and fitness, and that's a whole other story. But what I learned during this time was that at that particular stage and season of my life, I didn't have a mortgage or a family or anything like that. So I was very conscious of the fact that if I split my focus and I pursue multiple passions at once... I, A, may not make as much money, and that's okay, and B, my progress in all of the different zones is probably going to be slower because I'm splitting my time and focus. So I went into this eyes wide open, and I recognized that by choosing to pursue multiple passions at once and keeping a bunch of plates spinning in the air, that I had to dial back my expectations in terms of external reward or recognition. But I was doing that knowingly that my soul was going to be so much happier if I gave myself permission to experience the things that I felt were important for not only my professional development, but also my soul's development. These were things that I really wanted to explore and experience. And I never, I never gave myself permission to as a younger person or even in college. So there was about seven years, Mel, that I was doing the bartending, the the coaching, the dance, the fitness. I was a Nike athlete. I was creating dance fitness videos. I was doing so many different things. And so I did that for so long. And then I reached a new point where I was really looking at my life, uh, my relationship with Josh, who now I think we're going to be together almost 18 years, was probably just a year or two in. And I felt myself feeling I was ready for my next evolution. And I said, okay, what do I envision for my future? What is most important to me? And I didn't want to be scattered anymore. I'd kind of done that. And when I looked ahead at the future, I said, okay, if I try on a future in health and fitness and dance, what does that look like? What does that look like at age 40 or 50 or 60, like using my body as the sole source of of revenue? Or if it was in fitness, potentially having to come up with some type of um, apparatus or a product, you know, like taking it back old school, like a thigh master or something like that. Like that was going to be vehicle towards wealth. And I was like, it didn't feel right when I tried that on. And then when I thought about the possibility of my entire career being focused on helping people with ideas and creating training and programs and speaking and writing books, I could see myself doing that into my 70s, 80s, 90s. Like there's something in my body that was just like, yes, plus the virtual nature of it. The fact that I'm someone who loves freedom, that's probably one of my highest values. And I knew because of my experience and what I was building, I was like, I can do this from anywhere in the world. I can reach people all over the world. I don't have to be landlocked, which at that time, again, we're taking it back now to the early 2000s, mid 2000s, like the aughts, 2007, 2008, where, yeah, there was fitness videos, but we didn't have online apps. Like none of that stuff existed yet. So um, I made a choice then to go all in 
with my online business and coaching. And that's when I really just started to understand on a deeper level, how many brilliant entrepreneurs, many of them women who had ideas that they wanted to bring to life, had products or services that they wanted to get out into the world. They wanted to create something meaningful and profitable, but they weren't yet skilled. They didn't have the capabilities around marketing and sales. And when I would have these conversations with women, especially because of my fitness journey and being in New York City, and I would have, I had a book out already. So I was constantly talking with women and in conversation with them. They'd often say something like this, Mel, like I'm the idea person. Like I have this great idea for something, but I want someone else to handle the business side or oh, marketing and sales. Like that's so negative. It's so aggressive. It's so pushy. I don't want to be a used car salesman. And Mel, I would want to take them and lovingly shake the crap out of them because I was like, no, like marketing and sales, first of all, is the lifeblood of any sustainable business. But more importantly, what these women weren't understanding was that there was a new style of marketing, something I like to call modern marketing, where the best of your humanity comes out when you're practicing this, not the worst. And when I say the best specifically, I mean your empathy, your compassion, your creativity, your sense of being generous, wanting to be of service, like all of the best parts of you when you're practicing how I teach modern marketing, you actually become a better you, not a worse you. Plus, it really is the secret to having your business not just be able to survive, but thrive no matter what's happening in the world. And after being in business for 20 years now, it's like, I'm not just saying this out of theory. I live this through practice. Mm, so incredible. And I completely contest to what you're saying. I think the way that you teach people to sell goes against all of the old stories that people have from years and years of, oh, selling is bad. I don't want to be sold to and I don't want to sell. It feels icky. Yes. And, um, you know, you openly say, I love marketing and I, and you help other people learn to love marketing. And I truly love marketing what I sell now, my products and my services, because I genuinely love what I'm offering. And so why would I not want to share that? Um, but there's such a way that it can be done in such a authentic and loving way, as you yes. say. Super elegant and it's not pushy. It's not aggressive. It's in a place of service. And it's also in a way where when you think about it, I often think about this in my life, you know, all of us have challenges. All of us have stress points. All of us have problems. And whenever you found a solution in your life, whether it's something with your home, or something with your health or something with your personal development or something with your business. Aren't you so grateful? You're like, thank goodness this person created this thing, whatever this thing is. And when someone delivers that to you in a way that really honors your humanity, that really serves what it is, is your pain point and then takes you higher. You're happy to do business. Like you're like, oh my goodness, thank goodness I found you. That's the feeling. That's the emotion. That's the connection that we have the opportunity to create if we're willing to develop the skill set to be able to do that. And this is, again, not the kind of thing that we're taught in school. We have also had, um, just for a moment, you know, we've had many people who have PhDs and MBAs go through B-School and say, oh my goodness, what you're teaching me is actually more actionable and more applicable, more aligned with my values than anything that I spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on these degrees to learn. So I really hope you loved this episode. 
If you enjoy listening to this show, I would love if you would leave us a review. And really exciting, you can now have your question answered by me on this show live by sending in a voice note to the show. So you will have the option to have this message completely anonymous too, but it's going to be like getting mini coaching from me on air. So if you want to take part in this, I would love to do this with you. So go to the link in the show notes and you'll know exactly what to do. So thank you so much.